Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Crystal Fall, I'm the editor of the Toolkit. And my guest today is Game of Thrones director Miguel Sapochnik. And today's podcast is brought to you by A&E's documentary series, The Clinton Affair, from Academy Award and Emmy-winning producer Alice Gibney and Emmy-winning director Blair Foster. Weaving together never-before-seen archival footage with exclusive new interviews, the series examines the biggest political scandal of a generation and its lasting influence and reverberations on our country. Exploring broader topics including media, feminism, politics, and power, the documentary investigates the history leading up to impeachment trial and chronicles the role each of these forces played in the story of sex, power, money, lies, and ideological warfare for your consideration for outstanding documentary or nonfiction series. I didn't know who Miguel Sapochnik was when I saw the Game of Thrones episodes uh, like Hard Home, The Wind's Winter, Battle of the Bastards, but I instantly couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, this was no longer a visual effects spectacle. This was a level of filmmaking in terms of scale that was Hawks, Spielberg, George Miller, uh, Director Bong in South Korea. That sense of not only being able to control the complexity of uh, simultaneous threads, but uh, to, to kind of mold it precisely in terms of how the audience experienced it. You know, Miguel is tentative to talk about Game of Thrones, and for good reason. Uh, the Fervor fans can take something that's said and it gets twisted up. Uh, but what I offered him here was a platform to tell his craft story. Uh, but also his Game of Thrones story, he, you know, going from a director who the showrunners didn't trust when he was a last-minute replacement hire on season five, uh, to becoming, you know, in the, these final few seasons, uh, their most trusted collaborator. Um, we left time for a deeper dive. This is an over two-hour podcast. Uh, we do go chronologically through Miguel's experience with the show. A little after the one-hour mark, we do start talking about uh, season eight, uh, this last season, and uh, his work on The Longest Night and The Bells. I hope you enjoy this conversation with, and um, yeah, I'll just I'll just say it, the best filmmaker and working in TV the last couple of years. The first thing you, the first one you did, and I rewatched it uh, earlier this week, The Gift, mm. which I don't mean it's an ordinary episode, you know, because you've done some extraordinary battle ones. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm wondering what was, you know, that was the start of you being on this show. What was that like? How did you get onto the show? And then I'm curious, what about the gift made them think, you know, we're gonna, that we now, this is the guy we wanna work with to do, like at that time, what was the biggest battle scene in Hard Home? So the, the uh, originally, um, there were two episodes they, that we, the Game of Thrones directors up until the last season directed blocks of two. So the five directors per season and each director directs two blocks. Usually, there'd be consecutive blocks, not always. And then occasionally, some directors have directed f four episodes in a block. Um, uh, so, the uh, originally, Neil Marshall was going to direct those two, these two episodes in, in season five, which was The Gift and Hard Home. Um, and he dropped out, I think, a couple of weeks before they were actually meant to start. And so, I ended up really, by luck, getting into uh, a meeting with David and Dan and having conversations. So they hired me, they, they hire you for two episodes at, at, at a go. And we were talking about, I'm trying to think what I had just done. Um, I had done a bunch of kind of larger scale action scenes for Banshee, the first season of Banshee. I'd done some stuff for House. I'm trying to think what else I had done that was sizable. 
I basically had done a bunch of action stuff. I'd, and it's all, you know, the interesting thing about television is you don't get to choose the scripts. And usually because people drop out and you come in last minute, you, you don't, you kind of like end up by coincidence with these kind of scripts. And so I really by coincidence, more or less, had ended up with a bunch of complicated television episodes. And so I came into this and I don't think that it was that they chose me specifically, but I came into this, these were the only, this was the only two episodes left and I said, you know, they said, why, why do you think you'd be good for Game of Thrones? And I said, well, I'm really good at action scenes, um, but I also really like small talking head scenes as well. And David said, that's good because the two episodes we want to hire you for is, is one and a half hours of talking heads and then half an hour of a big fuck off action scene. And I said, great. Um, and, and that was that, literally that was the interview. Um, I got hired, I flew to Belfast, I got off the plane into a car, drove straight to uh, a quarry and got out of the car. Um, uh, there were 30 people waiting there and they were all s waiting for me to tell them if this was the right, right quarry. That's literally what happened. And so- This was for the battle scene. This was, this was, this was, I'm trying to remember whether I had a script before I arrived. I want to say I had a script before I arrived, but I don't even remember. I just remember fly, forgetting my passport, which is the worst first impression you can possibly make, in LA, fly, getting my passport, flying to Belfast, arriving, getting off the plane, going straight to the, the quarry, being asked if this was the right location, not having a clue what to say, so saying, sure. And, um, and then, Everybody in that meeting left to go on a scout to Croatia and I was left by myself in Belfast and they said uh, Why don't you look around the sets and I had no idea where the sets were. I'd never been to Belfast before and uh, I Was extremely jet-lagged and tired and luckily Deb Riley who was the production designer Took pity on me and said, you know what? I'll stay behind today and I'll show you around and the sets are 60 miles away from each other. I mean, they're all over the place. So if I hadn't had Deb, I would never have found any of those places and I would have probably sunk at that point. And later on, I realized that was kind of their policy. It's like sink or swim and I'd lost my passport on the way. So it was like, this guy's an idiot. Let's let him sink. Um, so I saw all the sets and then started work. And what was interesting is, is so in answer to your question, you prep those two episodes and shoot them at the same time. And then each director has a uh, assistant director and a DP assigned to them, and you're that team. This was Team Sapochnik, and there was Team Nutter or Team Podesta or whoever it was at the time. Um, and you have a main unit called the Dragon Unit who stays in Ireland, more or less, and shoot all the big action sequences. And then you have another unit called the Wolf Unit, and the Wolf Unit start in Ireland, in, in uh, Northern Ireland, and they head out to Spain or Croatia, wherever it is, and they do the away unit. And because people share locations, the you can fly on one day, you shoot a scene, that evening you fly to Croatia, the next three days you shoot a scene in Croatia, then you go to Spain, you shoot another scene and then you come back. So they cycle the directing teams through the locations as much as possible using Belfast as the base of returning standing sets they can come back to. So it's a big machine. Um, so what is, at that time, I think it was 25 days an episode, something like that. Um, so what was 50 days of shooting spanned over six months. 
Um, and so there were days when you didn't shoot and there was days when you're prepping, etc. But what was different and unusual for me is that I had this big monster of a scene, which was hard home. And it was towards the end of the schedule and nobody wanted to talk about it. Literally, I'd walk down the corridor, there's a long corridor in the production office and I'd walk down it and people would see me and they would go into their rooms so that they didn't have to talk to me because no one wanted to deal with something that was that far ahead. The, the kind of eye of production looks at what's in the first, in front of you for the next three weeks. They try not to get too stuck into the stuff that's later. And I was, I had stuff at the beginning, stuff at the end. And so there was a fair bit of stuff that got shot for the gift that was first and naturally hard home because it was at the end of the schedule came later. So I'd had some experience of working on Game of Thrones and shooting on Game of Thrones before I reached the shooting of Hard Home. And that was, but that was as much separation as it was. And so the interesting thing about The Gift as a whole is that The Gift is a relatively like straightforward episode. There's no, there was a, there was one fight sequence in it, you know, and, and, uh, and I use the fight sequences just as a way of differentiating, you know, uh, drama without action, which is quicker to shoot than drama with action. Um, uh, and so it was a it was a it was relatively straightforward in terms of shooting until this particular sequence was going to take place. And interestingly, that year David Nutter was shooting the last two episodes of that season, Mother's Mercy, and then another thing. I can't remember what it was, but there was another big battle that was being done, which was happening in this kind of fighting pit, uh, uh, and it was being shot directly before Hard Home was being shot. And so everybody went off to do the mother of all battles that anyone had ever done before on this show. And then they were all gonna show up exhausted, tired <laughs> to shoot Hard Home. And I remember feeling like, you know, why the fuck did they schedule it this way? Because I was gonna get a tired crew in part. I mean, it was a different unit who was shooting it, but you do cross pollinate with the effects sure. supervisors and things. So. Um, so I never really got that um, experience of just doing, of doing the gift and then them saying, okay, well, we should try this. Okay. It was like, here's the whole thing that comes at the end, work it out. I'd seen some stuff, um, they go by Dan and Dave, right? Hmm. We'll just call it that. I'd seen some stuff where Dan and Dave had talked about the fact that how with Hard Home you had kind of shaped some of the story of the battle. Hmm. It was a lot bigger. Um, and part of it was a conception of it, both in terms of point of view, but mm. also in terms of that wall and, and a horror mm. element, and also just seeing it more of a, as a massacre and then mm. instead of like this kind of arcing battle. I'm curious about that feedback loop. Um, even though what you're describing is being thrown right into the deep end, mm. there, that element of the filmmaking going back and kind of affecting story rather mm. than it just being like, okay, time to execute this script and stuff. Um, David, because he hates being called Dave. Okay, but I'm going to call him Dave in this interview just to wind him up. Um, no, David and Dan, <laughs> uh, they didn't like me very much the first year because uh, basically until I did Hard Home because the second day of shooting I shot something that they didn't like which David always likes to tell the story um, uh, uh, of... I, I, shot, I, I like shooting through things, they didn't like me shooting through things. I shot a whole scene between Cersei and Tommen through these greats because it seemed like he was a prisoner etc and everyone was super happy and then on the weekend 
I got a phone call from Dave and Dan as soon as I got as soon as I saw it was them calling on you I was in trouble and they said we saw the thing you shot because they liked the first day I shot which was this scene where I uh, uh, was selling oysters uh, and then the second scene which was my second day of shooting they weren't so keen on they said you know it's so self-conscious and we hate it basically they literally said we hate it um and I said, look, I shot, and, and I'd actually shot it really quickly, and I was, and we'd all kind of, we were all going to go home early, and I shot some extra coverage just because I felt bad. And so I was like, I shot other, I shot a different version of it, I'll send it to you. And they're like, yeah, 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 okay. And then two days later, Frank Dolger, who's one of the executive producers, came in and says, yeah, you're going to reshoot that scene. So they kind of didn't like me because I fucked up on day two. And I was visually policed for the first three months of my shoot. And it made the creation of Hard Home really, really difficult because I just think I pissed them off. And um, and so the process of how we came to Hard Home, which was a series of kind of redu- reductions and compromises and lateral thinking, uh, was very painful because I didn't really know or understand how they worked. I also think that's the reason that it worked out because Dave and Dan interestingly seem to inspire a lot. They've they're very seem very intimidating to people who don't know them, and actually they're lovely and they're a bunch of nerds, quite frankly, and that's why I like them. And you know, and it's just so they, but you know, to to the outside world, they you know they're the head of the successful show and they have very specific ideas of how they like to do things. And I learnt the hard way how they hated magical transitions um, in a scene in The Gift where uh, uh, Meister Eamon dies and I was, I had him, I had a camera that kind of came up over the bed and landed on him in a close-up and then we were pulling the, uh, the, pulling the, uh, the linens from under him to reveal a bed of sticks and then pulling back and he was basically dead on his, uh, uh, on his funeral pyre and we did the A side of it and no one said anything. And then the B side, we were, he had this pillow which was left over from the A side of the shot. And David was there and he was like, why is there a fucking pillow on the funeral pyre? And I was trying to explain. He says, why are you doing that? And it was a thing. And I remember, you know, we were kind of burning this guy. And we could only it's kind of a graphic once. match from actually from exactly, the bed. Yeah, yeah. Into it's a digital the, match. Yeah. So yeah. basically it was like we came up over his face and then we did a digital uh, transition stitch into mm-hmm. being... Pull back in a, in Castle Black. My, uh, Miguel, by the way, is right now doing a crane shot up and over, looking down. I use my fingers a lot. Um, the, so, the, so the so the so anyway, so there was a there was a lot of difficulties from my perspective in terms of creatively not understanding what it was they were after and trying to understand. And so I spent three months really trying hard to learn and understand what was Game of Thrones and. I did this when I worked on House, for the, which was my first television show that I ever worked on. They said I, would, I was offered an interview. It got put off three or four times, and so I watched 90 episodes of House, not in order, until I figured out the formula they use in House, which is two-and-a-half-minute scenes have three setups, five-minute scenes, anything over has five setups. And not five setups, but it's in their five directions that they shoot in. And, and, it's, and it's not... You do. I do those things because I find it useful to understand the kind of what's the algebra, what's the math of something. Here, it was trying to figure out well, what's the style they're going for, and they would always say, oh, "We don't have a style," but they have a kind of. It's a, eventually I got from them. It was a very, 
they like a traditional David Lean style. They don't want directors coming in and doing things that are different because they want people to watch the entirety of the series as if it were one long movie, which makes a lot more sense now as well, you know, at the end of season eight. But the, the, so the battle was to try and figure out how to retain the style they wanted and at the same time work within the nine days we were originally given to do Hard Home. Which was an impossibility to do it. Nine days for the battle. Yeah. And that was from the moment they arrive, which include the big dialogue scene and the arrival, until the very end when the Night King raises his arms. And it's like, it was just, there's a physical impossibility to achieve that in that time. And so basically my fight became twofold. One is, how can I get as close to that number as possible? And two is... uh, uh, how can I do it in a way that still satisfies the requirements of the show? And I think that that process led to having conversations with them where I had to simply say, we just, I can't do this, but I can do this. And I learned that that very quickly was the best way to approach them about anything is if you go to them and say, I can't do this, they ignore you. And if you go to them and say, I can't do this, but I can do this, they listen because you're offering them an alternative. And the more that I did that, the more we reached a place where it was easier for me to show them in script form because it was a format that they understood and that they could also left room for imagination as well. So it wasn't me limiting them in the one hand, but it was also, it was a format that they felt comfortable in. So we kind of like bantered around with the, the, the script and it was just ways of showing them and they kept some, they lost some, they did, you know, eventually they, 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 their script is their script. But the, the important thing was is, trying to get a dialogue with them that was speedy enough that they had time for because they had four other directors pestering them for stuff and reach a point where we could get to the answer of how are we going to do this when it's twice three times as big and I think it became a series of ideas based on the this is the here's the pitch the pitch is we don't have the money to do to have a hundred thousand wildlings be attacked we need to make it smaller. How do we do that? Um, uh, we can't even afford 5,000 whites, which was the original number that attacked the, the wildlings. And it was like, okay, well, let's put them in a, uh, let's make them come through some sort of bottle stop, some f- archaeological thing that would stop them from being able to get through at speed, which at least slows them down because otherwise the guys at the, f- the back of the wildling encampment would be dead within seconds and so would the guys at the front of the waddling encampment. They wouldn't escape. No one would escape. And the reality became a great selling point for them because they like things that are based in or credible. And then when we couldn't find the art, we had to change the quarry to, because the people who owned the quarry uh, believed that we were blasphemous because they were very, very Catholic and they thought the Game of Thrones was just a, a, a blasphemous show. So we changed to a different place uh, called Macramorn and then we... Uh, kept working through that and then eventually I was like okay we build a fence because if we build a fence it's high enough that you can't see what's over it but you can hear it and it can break down and let's make the entire so we basically took a section of the battle and focused on that brought everybody into a smaller area and then surrounded it with a fence with an unspeakable force on the other side and that's how and I used the jaws analogy because it was an easy thing to use and then as soon as I came up with that they responded so I think they responded to my ideas before they responded to me as a director and that was an interesting thing because they're writers and so it was an, I, I feel like that was a just I'm not haven't really thought about it before but it, it feels like that was a good place to start and it was only about 
the third or fourth day of shooting that they actually went from what do you want to what do you need. Yeah. It's interesting to me because some of the solutions visually and in terms of the visual storytelling are things that you kind of build on mm -hmm. and other ones. What you're talking about is a spatial solution. Mm. You know, you're building a, you're building a fence mm. and a wall, yeah. and it's a sense it's a sense of the space outside. Mm -hmm. And so much of what you're doing is spatial. Mm. And there's also an element of I'm curious. At the time, I think mm. this is one of the biggest things they had done, right? Hard home. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. I, and and so there is also this element of what one sees right away is also compositions in terms of scope mm. and in terms of visual effects. Mm. And I know that that's something that evolved from season to season. Mm. And it's something that I'm sure, but I'm curious just even coming into this, you know, we'll just say the last episode you shot, the one that only aired two weeks ago. I mean, some of the layers and compositions you built are just gorgeous. And one of the things that I'm fascinated by is, I understand you're an obsessive storyboarder. But I, I've got to qualify that in a minute, but Karen. But, 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 but one, what about, you know, I'm thinking just the first time you do this on a hard mm. home, what about these layers, you know, multiple actions, some things are mm. in green screen over here, some things are shooting here, and those layers of action and also those layers of composition, that mm. I, is this something, I have to imagine to some degree, this is, when you're doing hard home, that's something new for you, right? Well, so th there's three things. First, the, the, the caveat qualifier. I love my wife, but I'm not an obsessive storyboarder. In fact, I avoid it wherever possible. I was. Are a you assuming your your wife is my story on this one? I was. I was a storyboard <laughs> artist, right? Oh, okay. So, so I used to storyboard for directors, which is how I learned to direct in part. And and I I like storyboarding. When I started doing my own stuff, I found it more and more frustrating and inhibiting to storyboard until I did my first film that I didn't storyboard. I refused to storyboard anything. And subsequent television episodes that I tried to storyboard as little as possible. Mm -hmm. um, never been a fan of storyboards f for me personally because I guess because I get annoyed with the quality of the drawings, which I know is wrong, but it's true. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then I recently, last season, I found a storyboard artist I really liked. But the, but so I've always struggled with storyboards. And then I think what happens is that you realize that people feel more comfortable and secure when they have storyboards. So when I first started Hard Home, I actually storyboarded the whole thing start to finish with Will Simpson, who's the resident storyboard artist. And we, you know, it was like 110 pages of storyboards. And this was for the massive version, right? I don't even think we finished. Uh, no one looked at it, ever. And it was really frustrating because no one looked at it. And so you were just like, what was the point of that? I mean, we spent a long, long time trying to figure it out. And then as it reduced, they, in, on Thrones, they use previs. So, uh, and I'd never use previs as extensively as they do. And effectively what they do is previs is a kind of a way that David and Dan retain control over the visuals of the show. Um, because any action sequence and anything that requires a dragon or a big vis effects background, um, they ask for it to be pre-vised and therefore they're able to sign off on it before it's shot. The funny thing is, is that when I initially started working with Joe Barron and Steve Kulbacher, the producer and supervisor, VFX supervisor, they had a system of working that was kind of not 
particularly friendly to directors. It was, it, it was them controlling their budgets as well. So they had started previsiting it already before I'd even kind of come on, which I was very uh, resistant to because it's like I don't understand how you uh, you you asked me to direct or not. So there was a lot of back and forth to get to a place where we ended up with a piece of previs that sufficed for them, but that I specifically kept vague because eventually what I kind of got them to understand is I wasn't going to shoot what they prevised. I was going to shoot what seemed right in the time. And the reason that I wanted to do that is that the sequence itself was meant to feel, it was meant to come out of nowhere and it was meant to be terrifying and there was a point of view we were trying to take on board which was that of Jon Snow and the Wildlings which is the surprise and the unexpected and it meant that the more you designed it the more complex it came to bury that design and that's a, f a problem I have with a lot of action movies of the day uh, of the you know current times which is they feel so designed that it's hard to feel the uh, the kind of anxiety that I can only begin to imagine one would feel in a real situation like that. And my interest in battles thus far has been to try and be experiential with them, that they're an experience that you don't necessarily have to understand, but you feel. Um, David and Dan are very good at, at, at forcing me into give into geog geographical shots which I always resist a lot. And it's not, and it's part of why I think we work well together because I don't think they're a bad idea. It's just sometimes for me, I like being caught up in the chaos. And, mm -hmm. and I think the, I don't want to let the audience off the hook and they're very good at saying, let's drop back, let's take a look, let's go back in. Um, so with, with Hard Home, there was two issues I had to deal with. One is that, you know, they were, there was a visual effects department and component that was very large that, required me to pre-visualize or to, or to storyboard sequences that I didn't want to storyboard specifically. Um, and then we also came down to look at the quarry we ended up with and the quarry, well, it wasn't meant to be a quarry, it was meant to be an ocean, right? It was a quarry, so that was already a problem because it was a piece of water, body of water surrounded by land and we were talking about a place that was meant to look out into the ocean and it was a silent water, 300 meters deep, so it was seriously cold. Um, no movement on surface. You couldn't. We had boats doing donuts on the water to try and get waves up, etc. And then slap bang in the centre of that place we were meant to be shooting was the old set from Blackwater of uh, of King's Landing. And they were like, "No, no we can't get rid of this because we need it for a later season." We're not taking that King's yeah. Landing. <laughs> right? And I'm sitting there just going, "Well, how the fuck am I going to shoot this when you've got fucking King's Landing in the middle of it?" So we had to build around it. So it ended up being this crazy thing where I remember standing there one day. And I was like, okay, if I look that direction, I'm in camera. But if I look that direction, that direction, or that direction, it's all visual effects. How the fuck do you want me to shoot this? And it was, it was a quite big argument between me and Joe Bauer, the visual effects guy, because I was like, I can't shoot this if I can't create a sustainable environment for my actors to work in. And that was the thing that I really wanted to do in Hard Home, was create a place, a kind of a and a playground for the actors where they could get so immersed in it that they felt like they were in the real thing. Um, and so that became a big thing. And I think in answer, long-winded answer to your question, the, the, the style that evolved 
from Hardhome that then was used subsequently as we went through the rest of Game of Thrones was born in part out of a weird necessity to find a functional and efficient way of shooting and at the same time to without shaking things up because that's what Dave and Dan did not want is to shake things up I was looking for a way to distinguish why this sequence would be different from the sequences that went before it and so and I think this is often like well for me has been the most successful way of how do you shoot a movie like what's the style how do you direct a movie what are you going to do how are you going to do it I just saw Mother last night by Darren Aronofsky and it was very interesting watching something that was essentially could have been done on a very low budget but was done on a quite a large sizable budget with extreme attention to style and 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 a way of directing it and very specific and you know he's thought about all this stuff um that ultimately superseded the story that was being told and for me it's like uh somehow you have to turn your negatives into a positive and so in that situation hard home i was not particularly trusted or liked by the showrunners i was being given too little time to do something and the expect and i was shooting in an environment where we only had seven and a half hours of daylight a day when we needed 10 hour days and there was terrible weather increments coming in all the time somehow that had to be my advantage rather than my disadvantage so that was really the ethic that or the ethos i think is the right word that i used to walk into that you're talking about what's immediately in front of the camera and feeling it seems as if one of the things that was key with that scene was these extras who kind of got in the battle and so you're really actually staging and you, mm. the thing that you fought for was a space in which you could create actually create the chaos in yeah. the front right yeah absolutely there, there, there was so you, you the, the and this again is like something i've learned over the seasons but what we started there was we created controlled chaos um and we we assigned we, we we had a group of extras who were insanely loyal to the show like they wanted to be there through rain or shine um uh 16 hours a day crazy amount that and they were ready they wanted to do anything they would do bloody anything you had to look after them you had to feed them you had to make them feel like it was part of their story we had a god mic which is like a PA system and I would talk to them on a microphone very often just tell jokes do silly things whatever it was just it was like engaging them meant that when you looked for that return which is like active engagement from people who had to believe they were being run into the water mm-hmm. by a army of the dead they would give me the stuff I wanted and then we had to essentially infiltrate that group of I don't know how many people it was I don't I don't remember how many extras it was. It was somewhere between 250 and or maybe it was 260. It was somewhere between 250 and 300 uh, and they would alternate between being, you know, whether it was a white centric day or whether it was a wildling centric day. They would change over the number the, the the costumes. And then we had 60 stunt men and they would infiltrate that group and they were basically some of them would become team leaders of different groups of people and we had to find a way to create chaotic situations where no one was going to get hurt um and uh and motivate the crew and the cast in a way so that they knew what was going on because so the worst thing is is when you're in one of those situations and they can ignite really quickly uh if they 
things ignite, you have to be able to know how to cut it out and calm it down immediately. And there's a couple of shots in Hard Home West, people were really punching each other. There was like there was a couple of moments that people things got crazy because you get so immersed in what's going on. But it was never it was always ultimately a controlled environment and what we would do is we for example when we were trying to get the all the 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 wildlings to run into the water to jump onto the boats um we just set it up as bulldog and that was the easiest thing the night watch were the guys playing bulldog and then everybody else had to get through them and by making it a game or giving everybody the basic understanding that it was a game that you were playing it as a game there were rules and so people didn't break those rules and I think that that's part of the kind of mentality of like how do you get large groups of people to look like they're going at each other but actually make sure that it's safe. We now know you as this architect of Game of Thrones battles. I mean I think that's probably, you know, I'm curious before Game of Thrones, you know, were you a battle guy? Like are you like a scope, partially battles, violence, I mean are you someone like in the daydreams when you were a young filmmaker, like what, what, filmmaker's career did you want to have? I'm not talking about in terms of quality, but I'm just saying like, you know, I want to do these type of movies and have this type of thing. I don't necessarily get the sense that it's it's, it's Peter Jackson or, or someone mm, of not, that. Not, not really. They're, I mean, the, the I think I fell into doing, like, if I, if I can ca characterize the sequences that I do as complicated sequences rather than necessarily battles because Winds of Winter is a complicated sequence it's made up of lots of pieces and stuff like that but it's not a battle sequence um, I I always admired complex uh, sequences I found I remember going to see the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek and coming out of it thinking I have no idea how he made that just no idea I just can't even begin to fathom the decisions, the coverage, the why this instead of that, that just couldn't couldn't get my head around it at all. I, I've always admired it, but also felt that it's beyond my capacity. Um, and then I kind of discovered this formula that I started using, and I think it was on, it was Falling Skies and it was Banshee. So there's an episode of Falling Skies where this group of kids get caught by the aliens and they're basically in this kind of farm where they're slowly being having these parasites put on the back of their neck so I had kids two days to shoot freezing cold in some crazy plant I can't remember where it was in Vancouver um, or in Banshee we had a big empty warehouse 15,000 rounds of ammunition and a day and a half and a rocket launcher and so what what happens is you start to realise that no matter what anybody writes, if you break it into pieces, then you can put it back together. And and once you've broken, once you've broken it into pieces, it, you 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 can say this sequence requires a close up, uh, a, a wide shot to show where the gun, the bullet travels, and a reverse, and that's that piece. And then if I find six other pieces that require the same, shooting the same direction, essentially the same shots, now I could group those all together and I could say that that's a, like half a day of shooting. So there's this formula that you develop which is about how you break things down and you put things back together which is just purely technical um, that stopped making those things feel scary. They stopped making them seem unmakeable because you began to realise that actually there is a way to make them because people make them. Um, 
but it wasn't a choice. It was just, I happened to do, like I said, I had a coincidental, like the first house episode I ever did, which was the first TV episode I ever did, was a kid, uh, was a Matthew Lillard and a little girl trying to help a woman who has a seizure on a subway underground track, falls into the under, into the track of the underground, and he jumps down, and when he jumps down to get her, the train's coming, and there are 250 passengers on the train, on the, on the platform, and they're calling, saying, get out of the way, get out of the way, and he can't, so he ducks underneath the train, and we shot it in a real train station in Los Angeles, and we had to do it in a night, and there was no way we could go any longer, and suddenly you start to realise that motivating 250 people to care about what's going on down there means you have to interact with them. And once you've got the extras interacting, if you've done your work with the actor, the actors know what they're doing, the extras are the ones that you want to make it feel real because you cut to them and suddenly people light up because they feel like it's really happening. Um, and so that became a kind of like, all oh, right, that's a formula, right? You take that formula, you can apply it to anything, doesn't matter how big it is. And you apply it into the bells, it was the same thing. But I feel like, if you had said to me when I saw Star Trek, like when I saw Star Wars, I wanted to make that. But that wasn't as big as the stuff we're making now. But when I saw Star Trek, I was like, no idea. Just are oh, happy to go watch that stuff. So <laughs> let's jump over to Battle of the Bastards because this is something, you know, we were just talking about the fact with, with Hard Home, a kind of battle in terms of you in terms of the space and where visual effects are and where we could look. Uh, Battle of the Bastards is a remarkable piece of filmmaking that is told largely through space. You know, uh, we have this triangle, you know, and the story of this triangle of Ramsey and Snow and Sansa, and, and you have told it through this, you know, it plays out in the battle. Mm -hmm. And it has an incredible once again, for all these different layers and things going on, it's an incredible spatial orientation that also is telling the story through space. And part of the reason I summarize it that way is I'm wondering, you know, off Hard Home, clearly Dan David had <laughs> a better opinion of you, but there has to be an element of also control over the space. What you just had described with Hard Home, I can't imagine you had to fight those battles and pull off pull off Battle of the Bastards. Yeah, kind of. I mean, you know, <laughs> the thing is, here's what happened. So it was a really interesting, actually, and I, I found it really interesting. I remember, so they they say, do you want to do the next season? I was exhausted by the previous season, and I must admit, I was like, I don't know if I want to do that again. Oh, it'll only be three months, Miguel. I was like, I just can't be away from my family, because I was away from my family for six months, and I just had my kid as well. I was like, oh, it'll only be three months. I was like, oh, well, if it's only three months, all right then. You know, and sure enough, it was like six, seven months. It's I'm like, sorry, this would be three months to do... To, to, shoot, to, to make the two episodes of... of episode, what, what, was, what was Bastards? Uh, Battle of the Bastards uh, and Winds of Winter. Okay, we're, we're yeah. your block. Okay, yeah. yeah, so this this season's six now. Battle of the Bastards, Winds of Winds, Winter. Um, they're like, it's, it, you know, it'll be fast. What about Game of Thrones is fast? <laughs> and I was, and I, I don't know, well, I mean, clearly I wanted to do it. So yeah. Unconsciously I wanted to do it. So I was like, oh, okay, I talked to Alex, she's good with it. We, we, she said I'm not coming this time. Um, she tried to come the first time and she was like, we're out here, sorry. Um, and so I went over early. Uh, I had the same 
DP Fabian Wagner so that was like an essential component for me I couldn't I didn't feel that I wanted to do it with somebody else because I lucked out with him the first time and I just didn't want to there was no other way of doing there it. There seemed like a very shared sense of composition in terms mm. of the layers that he builds for you with light and totally. it, and yeah. in a sense, I mean, I, it really seems as if there's a shared language there and approach. I've never discussed so little about how we're going to shoot something as I have with him and never been so in sync with a DP as I have with him. There's, it's, I don't know what it is, just is and 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 he also you know he's 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 good at being you know he's German so he's very good at playing bad cop and uh, and and he was the one guy I remember when I when I did hard home the first year which was quite kind of a lonely year because it was I was the I was the hard home guy so I was avoided by everybody um, uh, he was the he used to call me every weekend and check that was okay and I those things mean an enormous amount when you're in that kind of situation and you feel like you're being like you're being bombarded you you know somebody offers you a lifeline of just a check in just a text to say you're right you just like they, they become you just like you adore them so I you know that that the combination of that and the fact that he's really fucking good at what he does and also has an ease with which he does it um, made it it was I could not do something without him and interestingly he wasn't that keen on doing another season because he had done a previous season so he was like on his third season he was like I don't know if I want to do this so I pushed really hard for him to do it uh, he came to do it he we didn't have an AD we got this uh, new AD who was a friend of his called Charlie Endine was kind of green and we showed up same thing flew in from LA got off plane took me from the plane to a field got off 40 people now standing in the field I shit you not just standing there. it was raining and they're like so is this field gonna work and it was just so weird it was the weirdest thing because you think there and you stand there and I thought wait hang on didn't we do this a year ago and then decided that that was a really bad way to start and we're never going to do that again and here we are doing exactly the same thing and so I was like, okay then. And that was the weirdest, that was a really weird thing because I, I thought, I was like, I came in thinking, so this year it's going to be different. And it wasn't. The only big, big difference was um, David and Dan had a, a, trusted me in a way that I feel I had never been trusted before, liked me, like we actually liked each other and I didn't feel, uh, I didn't feel like I was an irritation to them. I felt like I was actually someone they actually gave a shit about. Well, Hard Home came together so well. I have to imagine that in that tension, yeah. in that battle, you found a yeah. There was a trust and a, and a yeah. That 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 definitely happened, and it was you know, and it was a real relief when it did as well. But I think they, I think that the the, the showrunners basically said, "You're good. Do you want to do it like that? Okay." Um, so they trusted me. I was no longer being visually policed that I had never been before in my life up until Hard Home. I'd always been brought into fix visual issues and now suddenly I was like I was being told how to shoot stuff and that wasn't happening anymore we had broken ground in terms of using a 45 degree or a 90 degree shutter in the action sequences or doing a lot of handheld uh, a whole bunch of rules that they had set up that we had not necessarily abided by but now it wasn't asking him them if that was okay but rather 
it was them saying, no, no, that's fine. You do you do what you need to do. And there was also the visual effects department. Should we just pause before yeah. we go to it? One thing I want to make clear, because mm. I think it was such a big part of Long Night, I think, mm. you got to correct me if I'm wrong. Mm. What that shutter speed doing is that sense of the way that people move through frame, yeah. the way motion is, yes. is captured is different and it feels like juddery and fast yeah. with that one if, if, if the probably the most distinct memory we have of that is is some of the earlier parts of long night where you were yeah. you were doing that and also all of that essentially comes from the second world war footage shot in the second world war which was shot on these bolex cameras and the bolex cameras had if i'm i, th I think i'm right in saying this they they had a different the, the shutter of the gate of the camera was at a different angle and so basically created that staccato effect and it meant that when pieces of dirt fly through the air it's almost like you're seeing a series of still frames mm -hmm. so there's something about there's a lack of motion blur that makes things feel somehow more visceral when there's a lot of motion going on in them and that was something that is very common I mean there's nothing special about that whatsoever in action but for David and Dan, it was an absolute no-no. Like I have to imagine for you, though, mm. part of what it is is that you create chaos, but you have orientation and clarity mm. in the chaos. So one can understand where in their kind of David Lean mm. scope of things where that would feel wrong. Totally, yeah. But there's a trust because you create these chaotic yeah. battle scenes where we know where we are. It's not just a bunch of jumble yeah. wash cycle. That, and, that, and I think, I think again, you know, that, that speaks to, in the end, because it's hard to find create fruitful creative relationships. Like Fabian and me, it's complete coincidence that we met. Like he, that was not, that was a fluke. I was given him because he was gonna be Neil Marshall's DP on that year, and Neil Marshall dropped out. Um, that So that was a fluke. David and Dan, they made a choice to hire me, but then they also kind of had uh, uh, misgivings at some point, and then once they, trusted me what they did in Battle of the Bastards that was I think different than before is they brought me in earlier so they basically they didn't even have a script they had an outline so they had an outline they gave it to me I came over on a plane they took me to the field and then well they didn't take me to the field they were happily in bed at the time um, and then we came back and they said we've got 16 days how many days do you need that was Bernie Caulfield the line producer pretty much aware of the fact that there was some leeway. Uh, and then the visual effects guys said to me, uh, it was a particular conversation, they said, just so you know, Miguel, there's a lot of love for you here right now. Which wasn't like you can do anything you want, but it was like, do what you need to do, because you, it used to be that every single visual effects shot I wanted, I needed to bargain or fight for and I had to horse trade for other visual effects shots. This year, they weren't asking those things. So certain limitations had been removed, restraints had been removed. And I remember specifically thinking, we better make sure that we don't try and top ourselves. We can't, if we, if we try to top ourselves, we will burn. And I remember the people around me and the general mood of the place was like, you know, hard home was the dog's bollocks. We've got to do better. And it was a real issue for me because I believed that it was like, that's the way to not make a film. And in that sense of one off, 
and, and yeah, improve. it's just it's it's, it's you but that's also that's something that that became an ethos of the show, right? Of like we did this, we're going to do it bigger and better, and it, it, that's a fund underlying principle of David and Dan. They want to do it bigger and better every time. For me, it was it was I can still I can roll with that, but I I I need to not be doing something to. For the sake of it, I need to find a reason for doing it. And I'm not working on scale. I'm working on story. Yeah, and so that so the so the principal guiding light behind behind Battle of the Bastards became. Um, I felt I needed to manage expectations, which was generally dealing with the crew and the level of uh, uh, arrogance isn't the right word, but there was an enthusiasm that borderline I felt was incredible that we could do anything, which I didn't believe we could. And there was also the reality that I came back thinking, hey, at least they'll give me a chance. At least they won't do this this time. And they did exactly the whole, all the things they said they weren't going to do, they did. But they also provided a script which was way too big to shoot. And like everything happened the same as it did in Hard Home. Battle of the Bastards script was too big. Yes, okay. by a long shot, by a gigantic amount. And so, once I realised things were going to be the same as they were on Hard Home, I realised that the formula was the same. So we sat there and I was like, okay, I can't afford to populate this area with dead bodies to the to the tone of the number of people they want me to have fight each other, which was originally like 8,000 versus, eight versus uh, 4,000. Um, no, maybe it's 15. I don't know. It was a lot. Uh, I need to find a way to cover this up. So, and they had mentioned these body piles, which they really wanted to do, which they'd taken from a historical thing. And it was like, it seemed very interesting because it was visually something I hadn't seen. Um, and I began thinking about these body piles in terms of ways to cover up what we don't have. And then the, 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 Wall of Shields was eventually born purely out of the need to cover up the fact that we couldn't see beyond this small area that we could afford to dress. And again, so once you start to take the approach of the formula of like, lean into all of your disadvantages, make them your advantages, work, almost point up the the stuff that's not helping you as a way to find the answer to what's gonna help you. And then fundamentally, and, and, and I think this was the key element, is look at the story from the perspective, I think it's something I forgot to mention about Hard Home, but every story has a spine, every battle has a spine, there's a, there's a singular story you're looking to tell, sum it up in one sentence and hold to that. In Hard Home it was John uh, 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 fails to save the wildlings. In um, uh, Battle of the Bastards it was John's journey into the heart of darkness and the idea once I realised that if I took one person's point of view on this movie, on this battle, I could make it, it became makeable. And then I encapsulated it in a space that was quite small, so you actually couldn't see very much. And I had an in time bomb, which was the, the, the shields getting closer and closer, then walking in. So there was a ticking time bomb, uh, which and there was a fundamental error in judgment of our main characters, so they were able to connect with each other and kind of feel remorse without saying anything about how badly they fucked up it was like okay now we've got all, that's the, that's all the the recipe and i and i feel like that was again it's the same thing it was like it's the same basic principles that i'd apply to hard and then apply to bachelor bastards but with the key notion of don't try and make it just bigger just try and do what's right for this story 
it's been a while since I've seen that one, but what I remember is, you know, there's this history of Sansa, Sansa with, mm. um, what's that jackass's name? Ramsay. Ramsay. Yeah. Um, and she's warning John. Mm. He's he's manipulative. He's going to trick you. Mm. He's going to, and, and he's also got a sadistic way. Mm. And what was fascinating about it is, is that the battle ends up being that us, very thing, yeah. that very thing, and that story. And, and when you're talking about John's journey, it's really told in terms of like you're talking about what we can see in terms mm. of space. It really becomes John falling into the exact spatial totally. battle trap yeah. of 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 what. And, and I think it's it, it's it's fundamental. Like that's a there, there's a repeated theme within Game of Thrones in the way that they write the stories. They warn you of things that are going to happen, and the characters do it anyway. And it's almost they warn you, they summarize it, and then it happens in its entirety. And m- most definitely, there was every step of the way towards through that season towards that battle was the idea of uh, Ramsay is smarter, faster, and meaner than you will ever be, John. Um, how can you expect to beat him? And John saying, we have to try, you know. And actually, there was a, there's an interesting thing with Kit, which was Kit in that particular season felt, was feeling quite, I guess a little unclear as to what his character was doing and we and I believe that was the beginning of that season is where he had come back from the dead and so again I was like well, we should lean into that we should make that the story the story your story is and that's working within the parameters that David and Dan create but it's also there's room for improvement in terms of you know giving actors something to play off and in this particular battle what was essentially happening is it was a bar brawl between two guys on the, on, on, in a big field and so I was like we've got to give this point and meaning and Ramsey knows exactly what he wants and John doesn't and he Ramsey is driven by a precise uh, you know by malice and vindictiveness and what have you and John is just dead inside and so that was like the the idea of the battle, at least from my perspective, and I took with Kit, was we're going to bring John back to life by putting him through hell and coming out the other side. And then by pure coincidence, we ended up with that uh, the kind of rebirthing scene where he gets crushed, etc., etc. But I don't that I wish I'd have thought of that before mm. we ended up on on set thinking of it. I want to return to something that we were talking about before. Um, Part of this is about controlling what's in frame and your limitations, but I'm curious in terms of the visual effects, um, what became the, you know, what did you learn from Hard Home in terms of working with the team to have a certain level of control and to have a certain amount of communication about what you wanted in terms of the composition? was was previs the instead of it being the tool to monitor Miguel became the tool to to communicate it out yeah totally so the second year that I was on Thrones and we were doing Battle of the Bastards I they um, I hope I'm remembering this correctly they knew that I wasn't going to accept them making previs without talking to me so the visual effects team waited for me 
And interestingly, what happened is as a result of them waiting for me, we were behind because I was still trying to come to grips with what we were trying to make and the size of the field and you know all the auxiliary facilities that were required to house all these horses and these people and et cetera, et cetera, and everything that is a pretty serial aspect of the show, um, which I'd then use in the subsequent season. But the, the, so what started happening is I, instead of doing storyboards, I started making shot lists and I wrote shot for shot, cut for cut, the first third of Battle of the Bastards and I gave it to these four previous artists um, and uh, this guy called Pat who was like the lead guy and they started basically making me dailies and so I started cutting it ahead of time and again the ultimately what I was trying to do is if I at bare minimum shoot this you'll have your sequence and here are the visual effect shots required to achieve that but I won't have one camera, I'm gonna have four. And so we're, I'm gonna shoot you four different versions of this and auxiliary stuff, auxiliary stuff and, the, uh, uh, and then we're gonna be able to choose, but at the very minimum you'll have this. And what it meant is that the visual effects guys get off your back because they feel that they have the information they need. Um, they had become familiar with the fact that I was never going to just shoot what was what were in the storyboards or what was just on the uh, in the previs so they were they were kind of I, I, I'm assuming they were kind of putting something aside because they knew there was other stuff that was going to come in I wasn't being I was given the space to like for example going from a two camera show which is what it was into a five camera show was something that was a, a fight and then but once they it got going, they realised the value of having that. And actually, it was Fabian was it was four cameras. Fabian was the fourth camera, and he wouldn't know what he was shooting until the very last minute. You literally wouldn't know where Fabian was going to be shooting his shot from. You'd see a camera go up like two seconds, twenty seconds before you're about to shoot. Oh right, he's shooting over there. So there was an unknown quantity. It was like a roaming thing that we did, but it was amazing how much great stuff it provided. It's part of the idea. Just into, it's yeah. part of the idea here is that there's so much energy and mm. time and human emotion and physicality mm. into what you're staging mm. that you don't want to do it. You want to put energy towards to towards certain amount of takes and let's get as much as we can get yes. from around it. Yeah, I think that the I, I think what happens is if you do you know, once you go past even towards the end of every day, everyone gets tired, right? When you're into five days, there's a it's a it's you're no longer sprinting, you're trying to do a marathon when you're into 10, 20 days and you're doing the same thing, you know, it's the same level of physical effort required and thought process to do it, you need two really important things to happen. One is you need to maintain the morale of this group of people, uh, and that is a job of a director, I do believe. And two is you need to make sure that when you're shooting you have every single lens you can have on it because stuff is going to happen that you didn't know was going to happen and angles are going to become apparent that you didn't know were going to be apparent and you have to be okay with letting that happen if you want to create chaos you have to exist a little bit in that chaotic world but there's another aspect which is before you get there you have to metic this is my belief you have to means i have to some people do it in other ways but i feel i have to meticulously know exactly what i'm going to do at every minute of the day 
from the beginning of the shoot to the end of the shoot and in preparation for the shoot because I want to have thought of everything so that when I get down there, I can just throw it all away and say, nope, we're going to do this. It, the reason is, is that stuff happens you can't possibly know is going to happen. And when I was starting doing commercials, I remember seeing the crane coming down from doing a specific shot I had set up to do. As it came down, it did that or something. And it was such a cool image. I was like, wait, wait, wait. Uh, uh, uh. And my producer turned and said, what, what? And I was like, uh, oh, nothing. And I didn't do that shot. It was so much better than the shot that I'd come up with. And I've learned that grips who kind of just sit on their Apple box and put the camera down end up choosing amazing shots without realizing it. So I just watched the cameras when they're being left places. Like you, all these things that happen that you can't think of is part of what allows you to create the chaos on top of something which has a very ordered line. And that's the, that's the path that everyone can follow that the visual effects people have. Um, and if you, I feel like if you, or at least for me, it's been, I'm not sure I've yet learned how to do an action sequence where I just have one camera following one concept all the way through. Or I'm not sure, I've, I'm trying to think if I've ever done that, I don't know. But, but the point being is, uh, I think that the energy on a day and the energy over the course of a shoot is is such an important part of, part of filmmaking and is completely and utterly underestimated by um, by uh, uh, many producers that I've worked with, and it's crazy because it's so important to the making of a film. It's what differentiates the journey from being. Uh, a good or a bad one. Because I think one of the reactions to using multiple cameras is 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 that in this day and age, it's about hosing down the scene mm. and giving you every option, which is not what you're describing. No. But it, it, you, one understands why people have a natural, you know, negative reaction yeah. to to it because it's it's it, in some cases it's it, it's become taking the soul out of out of yeah. out of the filmmaking to a certain degree. Yeah. No. I I mean I I must say I I really don't agree with. The notion. I mean, I, I don't know where that the, that 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 idea comes from, and I don't know if it's. Uh, everyone has a different way of doing things. Like the, the most interesting thing that I found over the years is basically, uh, I've reached a point where it's just like, if you want somebody else to do this job, and they can do it faster, and it'll be probably as good, if not better, than what I do. Go right ahead. I do this. And if and, and I try as much as possible to do it as efficiently as possible because I'm interested in efficiency. I think that's actually a really interesting. If you can do things efficiently, it's great. It's like leaning into your uh, disadvantages and making them advantages. But the the there's a very specific reason you shoot with multiple cameras, and uh, you, I'm very aware of like when I've got four cameras going and I actually don't really know what I'm shooting it's bad. Generally, none of them get anything good. Um, there's a, and it's become something that we've seen a little bit, there are, there is that dynamic warner of John in the middle of the fight mm. and putting us right in the middle of the chaos. I'm wondering about that. It sounds like you, and it seems like I've gathered that you and Kit ended up having a lot of trust and faith in each other mm. in terms, but I'm curious how something like that 
in staging that and figuring that because part of it also I think once again is effects and 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 controlling everything that's in frame. I'm wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about how to get those beats right to get something like that because it's not simply I think sometimes it, oh you were immersed in the action well, you know, mm. yeah that doesn't just mean you have a handheld thing and you're in the middle of the thing that thing has to be like choreographed to a yeah. certain degree I wonder if you could talk about the approach and how, how you do something. so that was um that was that was probably the one time in the second season where I where I I probably gave in a little bit to the idea of oh wouldn't it be nice to do something even more complicated than the single shot that we did in Hard Home, which was effectively like you know, twenty five second shot or something. We were so excited about we'd done this twenty four second shot. You know, all this shit was going on, and we, and like in the end, all was fine. But it was just it just it's funny how you know. On the, on the bells, we had a seven and a half minute continuous take as she runs through the city. The entire thing was a one-up, and um, and we cut it up in the edit room because we got bored. <laughs> so it was like the, the 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 there's a there's this. So I was uh, what I was actually trying to do is it wasn't looking at continuous take. I wasn't interested in that initially. What I wanted to do is the core story was we need to be by John's side. That's how we're going to experience this. And it was built, and that ex that existed because it was important for the character, and because it was a way of reducing the overall cost of not trying to film a battle unless it related to John in some way, uh, at least in preparation. Um, when it came to shooting, we found that we had more options than we thought. Um, the uh, the horse charge, which I I don't know, I, I mean I you know I don't remember if it's in the script or not, but the horse charge. Um, I remember studying the horse horse charges over the years in horse charges in film, discovering so many of them were aerial shots, discovering that many horses died in horse charges and also when they were on film they died because if they fell they broke their ankles and they get put down, etc. So slowly building up and trying to look at horse charges until I got to the point where I was like, we do not have the money or the time to shoot a horse charge. And we got to that point, I was like, okay, we don't have a time to shoot a horse charge, so how are we gonna do it? And I was like, well, what would be different? Oh, it would be different if you weren't on a horse in the middle of a horse charge. And literally that was it. I was like, oh, that's great. What if you're not on a horse? That could be cool, because then the camera doesn't have to go anywhere and we can just stay still. And so I remember pitching that to David and Dan, I think, and, um, uh, and the way I pitched it to him is, is I said, because I realized like to be in the middle of the horse charge, he has to kind of be in the middle. So we have to get him to the middle and then we have to keep him in the middle while these two sides clash. And it would be interesting to do a reveal that his side is, is, uh, is showing up to help him rather than him seeing himself in the middle of these two things. So essentially the first thing that came up, if I remember correctly, was the clash itself, which was something that was an interesting concept because horses can't touch each other you have to be safe with horses like there's so many things that make a horse charge impossible and a horse clash impossible but then from that point on it was like well how do we get him out of the horse charge and i had an i had a moment where i was like god imagine if you were standing in the middle of the junction between the 405 and 
uh, uh, and the ten and instead of cars you had horses and as soon as I saw that and well apart from the fact that four or five and the ten don't intersect in that way right they but it was this like in my mind it was like I was thinking about like busiest intersection in the world and everyone no one's stopping for anyone and you're in the middle and as soon as I thought that, that that's I, called Bangladesh, by the way. Oh, okay, there you go. Um, so I I pitched that to David and Dan. They were like, "Yeah, that's great. Let's do that." And then I thought, "Oh, I can't. I don't have time to shoot that." And then I thought, "Well, I'd have time to shoot it if it was only one shot." And that was the birth of the one. You didn't do seven something in seven, right? You weren't. You I didn't. Weren't, no, no, I you, took seven off. You took seven yeah. off time yeah. to. I said to them, I could do seven or eight, but I couldn't do both. Okay. So, and, and at that point, they knew the end game was in sight. Yeah. The, the, okay. So, so they're mapping out seven and eight in, yeah. a, in a certain to a certain degree. Now, my guess is that your involvement and the process of doing these last two episodes mm. that you did, and my understanding is, were you thinking about doing three, four, and five? Yeah. Okay. So we can talk about. But I want. Uh, what was I have to imagine. As we're approaching the end of Game of Thrones, and you're being given these two kind of like mm. marquee battle scenes, um, this is a different pro. This is a different process for you in terms of in, in terms of involvement. Um, you know, I, my understanding is you lived in Ireland for essentially a year, yeah. essentially making two movies. Yeah. I mean, I, I, could you talk a little bit about a, you know how going into eight, it's a little bit different, and and also also. <laughs> One presumes since you shot fifty-five mm. nights that you weren't necessarily battling some of the limitations that yeah. that 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 you have been describing in some yeah, of these but, other ones. Well, I can start. Let me start with the end statement first. It's never enough. It doesn't yeah. matter what you get. It's never enough. Um, we originally had one hundred and sixty-seven days uh, when we did our schedule for four for for three and five. It was one hundred and sixty-seven days. They said max you can have a hundred, and we ended up at one hundred and thirty. So. It was a. So you're you're working with 130 days for, for both episodes, three for the bells and for the long night all together. And um, essentially, I think those ended up being close to what three hours yeah. combined, right? Yeah. So, okay. um, so the the so now let me go back to the beginning. In episode five, I was like the outlier. In episode six, I kind of got like the hero's return. You know, you got to do it, and everyone liked you because you'd done it successfully, and it had been something everyone had been scared seasons. of. You mean seasons? Yeah, six. Yeah, see, okay, so yeah. Yeah. season five and the outlier. Mm-hmm. Season six, I get to be like the the boy gun done good. Then we went out for dinner after season six, um, and uh, and they got me drunk, literally, and they said, "We, you know." we want you to come back and I said what do you want me to do and they said what do you want to do and which was contextually to understand to have people who you admire say something like that and buy you dinner was like awesome it was brilliant and it was very and it was I felt touched um, and lucky and all sorts of things I apologize just to put this in context um you know the outline of at this point. No, you. This is this is at this is in September before I won that Emmy for Battle of the Bastards. Okay, so it's not necessarily what do you want to do. There's these six episodes. It's like they yeah, said, okay. they, even more so. Got, it was yeah, it was okay. simply they go. We went out for dinner and they say, 
I said, how many more seasons are you doing? They said, well, there's six, so season seven, season eight. How many episodes? And they could, hadn't decided yet. They was like, we're 15 in total, 13 in total. I can't, I can't exactly remember. Um, and I said, what do you want to do? And I said, um, I think I remember saying, where well, everybody who's done four episodes for you guys, they've had a divorce, which is true. So I think. Anyway, I apologise if that's not true. Um, so I don't want to do four episodes, but I would do three, um, but I can only do one season. And so they decided A one-shot deal, essentially. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. go over there, I'm going to do this. Yeah, I, I was just like, I can't, I can't do season seven and season eight. I need a break. It's too much. Um, I need to see my kids grow up, my kid. Um, and so they said... So I said, you choose which season you want me to do. And they said, we want you to do season eight. And that was it. And I didn't know anything else for another six, seven months. And then in like January 2017, I want to say, I got an outline for season eight. I think. 2018. Did I shoot in 2018? No, I shot in twenty. Yeah, January 2018. Sorry, I take it back. Because we shot 20... No, 17. So, you were, I think you were in... Yeah, it was 17. You were in Ireland last school season, I think. So which right? is 2018, right? So it's the... We're right now in the... 2019? 2018, 2019. You were there 2018, 2019. Right. So I got the, the outline for season eight in January of the year that I actually went out there to start prepping not to shoot yet for another 11 months so it's 20 january 2017 i got the outline um and they had said to me beforehand i'd said what is the battle because i don't really want to do another battle and they said oh my god it's not it's like a lot of small battles and and i was like okay and then uh, and then they go and then basically they send me the outline And I read it, and I remember writing back to them, and I said, whatever you think this costs, triple it, whatever you think you need to do it, double it, you, you know, give me a fucking break, guys, honestly, like, that's, this is bigger than anything that's on, this is bigger than any movie, it's bigger than, it's like, this is gigantic. Are you reacting to Longest Night here? No, I'm right to, 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 to both the episodes. Cause what happened is, so the, 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 I, they said that we want you to do episode three and five, and I had campaigned for there to be less directors on the this season because every director requires so many meetings that it takes away from the ability for the from production to be able to actually follow through on the meetings and act on them. So I was like, can we get it down to two directors? I'll do three. Another director does three, and they said. Uh, they said initially they said okay and then they said actually we want to direct the last episode so I was like okay well then that's three directors Um, uh, uh, David Nutter only wanted to do two and I wanted to do three I wanted to do three, four and five because they felt like a complete story and so we tried to make it possible for me to do three, four and five it became impossible from a logistics standpoint Um, and so we didn't have a director for four and we were looking for a director for four and couldn't find a director for four and 
that I was really not keen on a director for four because I felt that it was adding another director and so another team of people, another set of meetings and David and Dan directing an episode and show running was going to take them away from their show running and uh, and in the end David Nutter agreed to do three episodes um, and you know, and I, if I at one point I tried to just say, can I do three and four? First, I wanted to do four and five, and I did, I just didn't want to do any more battles because it's exhausting and it takes a lot out of you. And you know, you spend it took me uh, it nearly cost me my marriage and took me six months to physically recover from doing Battle of the Bastards and Winds of Winter. So then to suddenly be asked, I want to go and do something that was going to be almost three times as big, and it was double the number of episodes. I was just like, I can't, I can't do this. And, but at the same time, I had now made this promise, you know, and now I had for the first time in my life uh, work secured for the next three years. I even went off and did another pilot for another show in the middle of it, but I always knew I had this job, which was unusual for me. So they, so I remember being, trying to find a way to not do two big gigantic battles and failing, and they just wouldn't let me do it. And I really liked four as well. I really thought four could be really good. And I, in my head, I knew how to end four and go into five. And so then I finally accepted I was doing three and five. There was no way around it. Uh, I, I was even actually, for a time, I was going to do the uh, the lake, the frozen lake thing on seven because I just they just wouldn't stop pushing for me to do something. And eventually I got out of that by getting a pilot on another show. Um, <laughs> I was like, I can't do it, I've got a pile, I'm so sorry. Um, the, the, and then finally we, uh, so we, we went into production on that in a very different way to what that, that we have ever done before, which is I had almost a year in advance an outline and they wanted feedback. And I was, I'd never been asked to give feedback and to give it also other context. In Battle of the, Bar in, in Hard Home I delivered a cut in Battle of the Bastards, I delivered a cut and then got the opportunity to do the producer's notes, which is not something that they've done before. By the time we reached uh, uh, season eight, I was doing producer's notes. I was uh, helping uh, producerially with getting Nutter's episodes off the ground because he wasn't available to start with. I was working with them on episode six, so I was engaged and involved in a very active way as, you know, and in part it's because my episodes involved two gigantic sets that needed to be used in other episodes, but the mainstay of the work was mine and so we needed to build them appropriately, but I had to keep in mind what was happening in the other episodes. So it was, it was moving from being an outlier into being integrally involved in the production of something that I felt very comfortable with and knew the size of, and also the people that I was working with knew me, so they didn't feel um, that I was just kind of waltzing in and taking over. You keep talking about how exhausting this is. Um, it all seems to pale in comparison to shooting 55 <laughs> nights. You know, let's talk about The Longest Night, and you know, I mean, there is the endurance story of this, but in that kind of producerial role that you have and in this idea that you're giving feedback why did you see this idea of a doing it all at night um 
and shooting it all at night and, and what that involved because it's, it had to have been an enormous sacrifice. I just flown to LA yeah. and I'm a fucking mess. <laughs> Do you know? And, I, and, I, and I'm getting off and I'm like, I, and, and like I, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna be go home tomorrow. I'm gonna be a mess. Do you know? And like, but like, I, I can't even imagine. You know, you know, nothing, say. nothing you've said so far has set me off to. That's why we did Fifty Five yeah. Nights. Uh, so originally. They so the first battle they did on Game of Thrones they didn't show it you just saw the aftermath because they couldn't mm. afford it. Uh, the second battle I think which is Blackwater um, they shot it at night because they literally didn't have the money to show that the fact that it was actually in a quarry and you know and, and in the way of our hard home set and then the the uh, and then Watchers on the Wall was at night as well so hard home I was like we should shoot this at night it'll be so much easier to shoot and they were like no way we want a day battle. And that's what forced Hardhome into being a day battle. So that's why we were just like, oh my God, we should have as much snow and fog as possible so we can't see anything. Again, same thing. You're trying to find ways to cover up stuff. And that's um, what you've done with weather and yeah. atmosphere quite a bit. Yeah, to, big time. It's yeah. the best best way, you know. It's literally put as much filth between you and the, the camera and the subject as possible. Um, uh, Battle of the Bastards, broad daylight. And so finally they were like, and this one will be a night, Miguel. And I was like... Cool, finally at night. And then gradually the dawning realisation of the sheer size of it started to kick in. And I remember very specifically actually, Fabian had gone off to do Justice League, right? And he'd come back and Justice League is gigantic. You know, no matter what you may think of it, it's a big production. He had gone off to do that and he'd come back and he was like, he was slightly in his, uh, he was slightly like, oh, right, that's how you make movies with loads of money. Well, we don't have enough money on this to make this movie this way. We need to build a Winterfell set indoors and outdoors. In fact, we should just skip outdoors. Let's just build indoors because there's so much control we need to have over the lighting and the, the fire and the absence of light and all these things. And I was like, okay, well, you've done Justice League, I'm gonna just roll with that. And we started breaking it into so many pieces that I lost track of what we were doing. And in the meantime, we had, were building a set for Winterfell outside and expanding in, all the money was going into that. And at some point I was there and I was just thinking, well, we can't, they were like, we're not building another set for Winterfell inside. You understand that, right? Not building a winter, there's one Winterfell set that's going to be the interior and the exterior. Well, no, so there's there's an exterior Winterfell, which is uh, is in a, on, a, on a farm in Toom in Northern Ireland. And it's the, and it's the set that you've, you know, we've grown up seeing all of the interior scenes of Winterfell are a combination of shot at a place, a studio called Banbridge and a studio called, uh, uh, oh my God, I've forgotten its name. That's terrible. The Paint Hall, that's it. Where which is, is in is the it? docks in Northern Ireland. Yeah. So, uh, so there's a, there's, it's shot, it's made of, it's piecemealed, but essentially the exterior, inside, outside, walled courtyards of Winterfell are in one set and we expanded that dramatically um, and uh, was quite fun as a, a lot of fun expanding that 
because we had a model of it in polystyrene and we just basically sat there and used a scalpel and cut it into pieces and then put it back together again. Um, the, and then somebody went and did all the hard work, but you know, we got to do that in a room, nice and warm. The, the, so the, the problem was is that you're 50 feet up and you're shooting in the middle of winter and getting cameras and lights up there and stuff like that becomes really problematic. And so, and you, there was another issue, which is the seeing the army of the dead out in the distance, which couldn't be done for real. So therefore they need to be tiled, which is kind of re replicated groups of people off into the distance all of that needs to be done against green screen and there isn't a green screen big enough to do that and so you end up in a situation where it's like we need to be in a controlled environment but we can't afford to build a set inside and so it becomes one or the other or be, or piecemealing it which is like when we look in this direction it's in a stage when we look in this direction it's on the location when we look in this direction it's in a different piece of the set etc etc and at some point i will just be Sorry, at some point when we had the, um, when we had the, uh, when we had, they just kind of got to a place on the, the, the set on location that was really interesting. It, you know, it had taken shape. We all went up there and I went wandering around and at some point I stood on a tower 50 feet up in the air, looked down through another tower, through a battlement, down into the courtyard below and I was like, I would never, ever, ever have come up with that shot if I was, which is what I'd have to do if I was piecemealing this together because I would never have stood here because I would have never had that perspective and goes back to your thing about space. And once I saw that, I was like, I can't, we have to shoot here. And it brought me back to the hard home experience, which is I need to create an environment for the actors that works, but also for me as a director, we need to, this is going to provide us with a feeling, an immersive feeling that you will never ever get if we do it any other way. And so I went back and asked, and I said, we have to shoot this here. And we were all standing on a battlement. There was like 20 of us standing on a battlement. And I was like, you know, look around us. Look, we are we're in a castle. We're standing in a fucking castle. You, and you're telling me we're not gonna shoot everything here? And, uh, and Fabian, who'd been the instigator of this, like, you know, we have to break it all up into pieces, was like, yeah, no, you're right. And and I pitched my whole thing like that's what Game of Thrones is. It's it's you know we've built up a a, 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 a reputation for for things feeling immersive. Our battle sequences, you know, that's that's the way to go. Otherwise, it will become another big kind of uh, studio movie. And it changed the function of how we're doing it, and it created a schedule which had fifty five nights in it, and we all sat around and talked about it, uh, particularly Sean Savage, who's the ACAM operator and the kind of de facto team leader of, of the Dragon unit, him and Pat, uh, who is the key grip. I talked to them and I said, okay, so how are you gonna look after your crew so that, and how are we gonna look after the crew so that they can make through 55 nights? And we came up with a plan of how we were gonna do it that was about rotating people in and out and having this ability to give people time off when they needed it because it was going to get quite difficult and that all seemed like a great idea and then you know we shot I shot half of episode five in nine days in December like I just popped through that one and January 3rd or the 8th I can't remember we started shooting on episode three at night and 
no one was prepared for how complicated that was on a purely psychological level because I've done two, I did two and a half months of night shoots in Toronto in the winter, exterior night shoots. So I'd done a long amount of night shoots. What so was that for? It was for repo. Yeah. Um, but I was younger and I was healthier and I was like, I hadn't just spent six months prepping like crazy and I was more driven, I guess. And then suddenly we were doing this and it was like, it was the, you know, after, the first week was in a crypt, right? So it was ugly and horrible anyway. And then the second week was on a stage, and then but we were staying on nights, and then it basically just started. You didn't want to flip the schedule. Yeah, you, we didn't want, you can't because you can't. Yeah, you can't go day nights, day nights, day nights right. you, unless you're on. Well, actually, you can do that. It's just not good for the crew. Yeah. And so we kind of we we built a schedule that eased us in eased us into a scale of things and shot sequences out in their chronological order because that's something I should mention which is I have tried really hard to shoot all these battle sequences chronologically and that's not something you usually do in film uh, but for me it seems such an essential component of understanding and coming up with how the characters are going to work in that space let alone the, 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 you know, I hate it when like the blood's on one side of their face and then it's somewhere else. And then it's like, because you, you, every day you have to come back and reapply the blood and then you don't know where it's going. What happens to them in this scene? You skip over that scene, etc. So, but suddenly we were shooting sections out and we were easing the crew into this nightlife. Um, and, and then you got to Winterfell to this location and tomb and the only thing there were sheep and and a bunch of pissed off farmers. And it was like, it just suddenly it was like, oh, right, this is going to be hard. And then by week three, week four, I remember standing there and like shouting down to the special effects guys, like, turn off the fucking wind machines, turn off the snow machines. <laughs> and I was like, turn off the snow machines. God damn it. And they shout back up to me, it's not our snow. <laughs> <laughs> and like that was, and that was, that was it. And it was, I, I would never, ever, 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 ever do that again. And I hopefully don't get quoted on that ever, because, but that was a, I don't think I've, I don't think my body's recovered from that now. Uh, I know. You're about 18 months out, right? Yeah. Like I know that a whole bunch of other people have had issues. It's just uh I, I kind of read up a little bit about it and it sounds like you know how you like with addictions for example it's like you think of it like a, a water running down a waterfall it eventually kind of creates rivulets of uh, and it carves its way into the rock that it's running down because it's a repeated action and you think of your uh, neural pathways in the same way it's like we had to stop living in the day and start living in the night and at some point it turning back on to days was a nightmare and I had my daughter move there with me for a year and my wife and every weekend I, if I wanted to see my daughter I had to go back to days and I couldn't get back I couldn't get back to nights I would kind of go day am I day am I night I don't know I've got no idea and when we finished shooting the last uh, day of the nights I couldn't sleep for two days and I got tired in a way that I can't even understand and then the third night I was like I'm so so tired now 
and I had to start work two days later and it was Easter Sunday and I was like, I'm so tired. I was like, I, it's okay, I'm gonna sleep tonight. And then my daughter that night contracted um, scarlet fever. <laughs> and we ended up in the accident emergency ward uh, with her and me just like out of my mind, so, so tired and but, you know, it didn't matter because it was my daughter and she had scarlet fever and I had scarlet fever. That happened in Little Women. That was like medieval times, but suddenly, oh no, scarlet fever's making a comeback in Ireland. And uh, and by the time I got to work on the Tuesday, I was an absolute mess. And I remember thinking to myself at that point, you have to remind yourself, anytime you ever agree to do something ever again, don't agree to do this. It's a very long battle, which <laughs> is very hard to do, I, I'm not someone that, mm. in general, we all have. I like anything that's well done. Yeah. But in general, we all have our things, you know. Yeah. And, and and battles are not my, you know. Yeah. I don't like average battles. You know, <laughs> I could do an average crime movie. I can't do an average ballad board. Right. Uh, but 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 one of the things that is impressive here is you got to figure out. Yeah, you've always done story in battle. Mm. Like, what's the story in battle? But now. I don't know, what, what are we talking here? It's like an, an 80 minute, like essentially a 70 minute story. Yeah. You have the nice setup with all the tension and stuff. Mm. So that's, you know, but by the time the thing starts and people mm. are killing each other, you got about like what, like a 60 minute chunk here, right? Like how, what was that approach to how to maintain a story in battle, which is exhausting? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's exactly that. How do you maintain a story? Like the, Again, the spine of the two stories, um, the, 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 the key catchphrase for Long Night was the final battle between good and evil and for the Bells it was what have we become. And, you know, those mantras, you keep saying them back to yourself because it reminds you whether a scene should be in there or not. The 17-minute opening that Long Night has is because I didn't want to have a battle. <laughs> Like it was just me trying to hold off as long as fucking possible because there's, I, I knew that there is a battle fatigue and there is a shelf life for this battle and it's, and once once we lose the audience, we've lost the audience, and seeing as there's a battle all the way through to the end, no matter what we do, you know, or we throw at it, it's just not going to be interesting. There was, the 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 fear of a re of it feeling like a remix of every battle we've ever done. Uh, there was the dissatisfaction of like, we couldn't kill all the people. I wanted to kill everyone. I wanted to kill Jorah in the horse charge at the beginning. I was just like, I was going, I was like up for killing absolutely everyone. I wanted it to be ruthless so that you, in the first 10 minutes, you say all bets are off, anyone can die. Um, and David and Dan didn't want to. And there was a you know a lot of back and forthing about that. Uh, and ultimately, it was because the, they were saving it for the bells, kind of. Um, but but there was a, you know, it, so it was hard. So I couldn't kill anyone, and I had it. To, it had to be interesting. How did we do that? And again, with credit to them, they let me engage early. They let me. It was a sustained engagement. I got to really question and argue them with them and I've learned with them when to stop arguing because there's a point where they dig in and you just don't want to be there um, and also they they let me I mean and that's really like I, I know and you know 
I think a key thing is, is like, it's not my show, right? I didn't come up with a show, I didn't make it. I am a hired director to go and do that. They have let me in and let me be involved. Um, and I've really loved doing that. But Final Cut is not mine. Final Cut is theirs, it's their choice. Also, whose ideas they take on board is their choice as well. So they let me engage, and so I engaged at every level I possibly could to try and think of how do we stop this from being a boring battle? Because I don't have, I, I, I sound, may sound weird, but I, I, I get bored in battles. I'm not very interested in them. So I was just trying to, it, everything was like, literally, maybe that was the mantra for me personally, rather than it's a final battle between good and e evil, which is a bit abstract. It was like, how do I keep this interesting? How am I going to go, how am I going to get through the next week of shooting? How am I going to persuade the actors that they're doing more than just hitting things with swords? You know, that they're, they're not, it's not just about the choreography. It's the beats between the choreography. It's the uh, kind of, the absence of dialogue for the first, like I think, forty-two minutes or something like that. It's like there's a, those all those things felt like they were challenges, and I did like that challenge, and I did find that exciting, but they, there was no, you know, I looked for uh, precedence for that kind of stuff, to, and it was interesting how few there were, how like Helm's Deep was one of the few ones I found where there seemed to be a concept that was about an extended battle sequence uh, Dunkirk was another one an extended battle sequence but what we had going for us more than any of those is we had 70 hours of story with these characters and so you realise that once you played with that once you took that into account very little could go a long way And that was amazing about the last season mm. a look yeah, it's because everything, look, right? A look yeah. is like, and my wife is a Thrones head. I, yeah. I, I, she's read the books and stuff, so there is times where I'm like, okay, mm. clearly that look meant something. Like, yeah. you know, like, but, but for people that are so invested in that yeah. show, that look means, means well, like a, a flood of history coming back. I had, a, I had a funny moment on the film I was just doing was with Tom Hanks, and he had never seen a Game of Thrones episode, and then like, I don't know, it, it, on our, one of our night shoots... He that afternoon decided to watch The Long Night, which is first Game of Thrones episode. And uh, and we're setting up and suddenly he comes over and he goes, Miguel, 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 I didn't want to stop the trailer, I wanted to come straight to see you. <laughs> He's really like funny, he goes, he goes, I feel like I'm talking to Elvis Presley right now. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was and and he said exactly what you just said. He said, This is the thing, he goes, like he was obsessed with the number of horses. But then, and how did they? Get, how do we get all those arracks on fire? But then his thing was, you know, all those looks. He was like, all those looks. I didn't know what they were about, but God, they really stressed me out. <laughs> and, and you know, it's a more eloquent version of that. But I think that the. But yeah, it was like that. That it was. There was something really cool about having the opportunity to now be non-verbal, and show these characters coming to the conclusion or what felt like the conclusion of their story because they all think they're going to die. We had two episodes to set it up as well. It's like, I didn't walk into that episode empty-handed. I walked in with a lot of, like, uh, the, the the wind in my sails as in, like, we've got an opportunity. 
there's we we would not have been able to do that in a movie and i think that's a distinction that's worth clarifying it's like you couldn't have made a movie with no character development and 80 minutes of battle mm. um so you 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 know dunkirk specifically didn't have any character development it just went straight in and it almost never really tried it was a an experiment in something and it was a battle told in three the same way through three different perspectives to extend the ability to tell that battle and for it for it to go on longer it's like that's so i i think we 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 were given a lot of opportunities there and the for me the thing i just kept thinking to myself as we were doing it is like don't fuck it up don't get ahead of yourself don't think just because you think it's interesting it's going to be interesting think about the characters play the character stories out and so because of that there is a very large portion of that battle not very large probably like there's probably like another 20 minutes of battle that is everybody's story from the beginning to the end that we cut out but we shot because what I decided was... I apologise, because everybody's story from beginning to end... The 24 characters in that battle, yeah. I gave every single character a had story a from the beginning. Had, yeah. had a beginning, yeah. middle and end. Right, all the way through, I gave them yeah. all a story, all in a specific interaction, all a journey that was not in the scripts. And I did it specifically because I needed to make sure that we all knew where we were and that those looks sometimes that you mean maybe... That those looks were f- built on something. They weren't just looks, right? So, you know, the the and I what I found with the Thrones actors is they're a big group of people and they care about each other a lot. They're also going through their experience of the last season, which is a difficult one, especially for the younger ones who've never done anything else, or the older ones who don't know whether they're going on to anything else. And so I wanted to try and give them tasks, and in giving them tasks, it created for them a story whether on camera or off camera that meant I could dip in I could say where are you right now what are you fighting for like I could give them simple questions and they were things that would engage them so they would remember what we were doing because otherwise it becomes this laborious act of just fighting and just choreography and trying to remember not to get hit each time and we were hoping or striving for something that was a bit more than that and so to achieve that, you need those looks to mean something. One, if we separate this into sections with the longest or the long night, there is a section in this where the filmmaking, it, one thing that you've mastered here is chaos, but controlled chaos. Yeah. And what we were talking before about the shutter speed, and but the sense of movement in frame mm. and a sense of loss of control like yeah. how and like how fast almost like in a George Miller Fury Road like yeah, how yeah. how much can I get and maintain this feeling of loss of control yeah. but right to the point of making sure you have orientation um, that seems to be uh, one section of this yeah. and it seems to be an experiment of how long you can maintain yeah. that without losing us to a certain degree right we do we we or at least I decided. Do you mind if I close the door? Yeah. Oh, just remember you're connected. I'll, yes. I'll hang hold, hold on to it. You got it. Uh, do you want some more water? I'm okay. Yeah. Are you? you I'm you fine. Need? No, no, yeah. I'm all good. Uh, the the I decided um, that the only way I could think to do it was to switch genres. 
Um, and by switching genres, what it meant is it allowed me to change the gears because, and so what we did is we, we then, it became three small movies rather than one long one and each one built to a crescendo and then at some point we'd get, we cut it off uh, and the, and within that there were other sequences, but I think the goal was, is like we, 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 built structures to work within and the structure of genre is a really good way of saying like we can have suspense at the beginning and then it turns into a, a massacre and the massacre is the only way the massacre will work because it wasn't originally like this in the script is that it's relentless and unequivocal like it's there is no way these people are going to survive and by Getting that idea and pitching that idea and David Dan buying into it, it meant that it the suspense builds to an attack. The attack is so much more, so much stronger than you thought it was going to be that everyone's going to die, and the only thing they have to do is get back to the safety and the confines of the castle. So now it's a race against time. At the end of the race against time, the fire goes up, we have safety for a moment, we have one dialogue scene, and then we go back into it. Now when we go back into it, it's the second stage of the attack. And it's probably what we used to call the man the wall sequence. It was basically the only real battle scene per se because it's people who are actually fighting each other. And it ends with the multiple deaths that get us to the uh, next genre, which is uh, suspense and horror, which is Iron Inside the Library. And, and so on and so forth. It's kind of like this weird thing of like, by, in, at least in my head, what I feel is like, when I can break it down into a relatable story that I can tell you in five minutes and say how things evolve, and something I just did on the film I was on, uh, if I can tell you it as a story and it makes sense to you, then surely I can expand that out into a movie. But if I can't even really get across to you as a story, then I think I have to think more carefully about either the words that I'm using or the way that I've structured my story because, you know, I I need not five minutes of your time, I need 80 minutes of your time. Uh, so that decision to break it into genre was, ba into different genres was based on the need or the, uh, uh, the, 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 the concern that if we didn't, we would know, we wouldn't be able to keep people watching. And it doesn't matter really in a way how many people you kill. If I don't care because I've just tuned out, then you, it's, everything's lost its impact. And in a way, we're, I, I feel like that was the, that was always the driving force. And there were many, you know, once again, it was a much bigger sequence than, than we shot. And there were many things that happened that people would have been so happy to happen. Attacks of direwolves and crazy stuff and all that. And at some point you're like, 50 direwolves attacking an undead dragon does not a good movie make. Did you shoot this or is this an idea that was no, not right? stuff we did not shoot. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay, sorry. But this is part of this, like, breaking it up into stories. Exactly, in which yeah, part it's part of the process. Every, I yeah. mean, like, the, 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 I think that you, as long as you've got a... Uh, this year, the, the season eight... David and Dan were, were heading towards the finish line and they were unrelenting in what they expected of us. And they 
you know, their, their mantra to us is, you know, it's going to kill us, but it's going to be great. And at some point we were like, no, no, it's actually going to kill us if we don't stop. But there was this, they, they drove it into, willed it into being. They were completely ruthless when it came to that kind of thing of like, no, we want this, no, we want this. And at the same time, at some point, kind of, there was a, there were moments of realization of like we we physically can't do some of these things, and other things we can. There's a conscious effort of going big in this. Yeah. And, and we we talked about this. We've been talking about this mm-hmm. about each season now. It's doing this, but there's an element of as this story moves towards its finish, yeah. it being big, big emotion, big story yeah. beats, big action. Yeah, there definitely. Um, uh, I don't know if that's. Uh, I don't know whether that's for better or for worse. I think what, what I. I think we're all going to need like a few years before. Yeah, I, I, I think and so. I, I'm not gonna, yeah. that's that's on everything. Yeah. you know, I, I, that, everything I, I like yeah. takes <laughs> takes a few years yeah. to process yeah. to a certain to a certain degree. I, I think that I, I feel like the. Um, if I go back to my original conversations with them, they said they want this to be able to be viewed in a 70-hour period, right? They want it to be watched as one complete film, which is why they don't want different directors trying to make it differently. They want one style that's fluid, that, that, that's fluid, so that's consistent. Um, I underst- If I am to understand that correctly and extrapolate from that, that means this was the end, therefore it needed to be big because it's based on 70 hours of you know build up like you want you're not going out with a whimper on this one you're going out, going to go out on and story does plan. become shorter at the end you, you don't stretch story out you you move you yeah. push things together and move it quicker yeah and, and you reach your conclusion and it's and I think that that was a that's a specific choice that they made um, and you know one could almost argue that they it could probably have been done even faster. I mean, it could probably have been done without a seventh season. It's like there's a, there's a, the, the, it was, everything has been about reaching this point. And I feel like even within the long night, you know, there was a, there was an extended battle sequence where the Night King, you saw the Night King fight. Very long, kind of like there was a, there was a whole bunch of stuff that was going to happen. But when we got there, not to shooting, but in the process of prep, and you start to prioritize what's important, and this is like a a micro version of what we're just talking about, at the end of an 80 minute battle, do I really care if the Night King's got some fancy moves with his spear? Like, do I really give a shit about that? What I care about is I care about this moment, which for me, I was really, I really enjoyed doing and uh, watching where Theon, Bran and the Night King stand in this surreal kind of fairy tale, nightmarish kind of landscape with a red tree and, you know, the falling snow and everyone's staring stock still. Like, I kept, that's got more punch to me than, and now, you know, the Night King does some fancy staff moves. That's the, and so I think that they, I think that, Dave and Dan look at it from that perspective and, and, and my equivalent of that because I've not done eight seasons of a show is at the end of 80 minutes I had to choose and I realised that I cared more about 
having the Night King engage Bran uh, in character than I did about them fighting. Um, it is shot at night, mm. um, and there is this night cinema. You know, part of this is once again just going back to—is mm. it Fabian or Fabian? Fabian. 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 There's an element of your collaboration that has always kind of been <clears throat> layers and light in yeah. these compositions, and <clears throat> you know, there's an element here which I thought he did incredibly naturally mm. of finding of finding those layers, mm. and when you see it properly. It's pretty stunning, you know, when she's in that that library in that thing, and you can mm. see, you can see that she's hiding in the darkness, but you can also then see these things. You let, we were drawn into frame, and it, it, it in and of itself, it, it's some pretty remarkable work. But I, I, there is this element I'm just wondering about of being in night, that premise of being in the dark for that long mm. and being in this. I'm wondering, because that's something that you have to kind of own, right? Of like, not only is this relentless, it's relentless on you, but it's also this element of being in the dark that long. That, I think, gives it this feeling, like we're in night yeah. and we're in this battle. I'm just, but, but also there's this element of how long can you maintain that to a certain degree. Yeah, and it's the same, it's like any other tool that you would use to tell a story. The cinematography is another aspect, it's another tool, right? And so not just the composition, not just the framing, but the the light, the absence of light, all of those things, you're saying something when you do that. And there was no, you know, Fabian put it pretty good. He said, you know, I know it's, there's enough, I know it's light enough because I shot it, or I know it's dark enough because I shot it, I can't remember which way he said, but the, but the, 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 we set ourselves up with a premise, which is the long night and we are making experiential uh, battle sequences where we want you to be subjected to as close as you can without being really in it to the feeling of claustrophobia, anxiety and uh, at times frustration that these characters are experiencing. And we know we have one light source which is Winterfell and until those flames go up, it's even less of a light source. So there's one lamp, one, I mean, it's actually, it's the classic horror movie. It's like the house on the prairie and it's the only one that's got a light and everything else drops into darkness and what's in the dark. That was the point. So if you do that, and what we're trying to do is, I was very specifically wanting to make white scary again by not seeing them. If we do that and we're not gonna, and we can't see on this huge big field the white's coming towards us, it means that there can't be much light. So That's your solution to not having green screen in the yeah. field is that they're just yeah. coming out of the darkness. We, we had to actually that was my solution and it ended up we had to have green screen anyway. But the, but the but the I initially it was actually that came from again, I just it came back from the fact that we didn't have the money to do what they wanted to they wanted tens, hundreds of thousands of whites. And I was like, I can't we can't afford to do that, so why don't we just put them in the dark? And they emerge out the dark. And, you know, there's a scene in Lost Highway, which is Bill Pullman walking out of a corridor that, I can't remember the name of the guy who shot it. Um, but, but, you know, one of my favourite shots, he basically slowly emerges out of the darkness. And I've always wanted to kind of recreate that thing. And they stacked a bunch of flags and lights so that he gradually, instead of walking through from darkness into light, he just, it's like someone t fades him in. And I just thought I would love to do something like that on this scale. Uh, so 
from a practical standpoint, it made sense. From a story standpoint, it made sense that this was the last hope that humanity have, and that's for the last beacon of light. And from the perspective of where we needed the story to go, which is to reach a surreal, chaotic um, uh, climax, we needed an environment that was friendly to that. And so all the reasons for doing it were there and nobody sat there and wondered if it was going to be too dark. We talked a lot about how tiring on the eye it would become. We tried to uh, have pops of light and colour specify areas with different overall lighting setups uh, in terms of like what the colour was here and the colour that, you know, what so that you knew where you were geographically when we would cut to different things and there were so many different characters, so many stories. But the decision was specific and, you know, I've got the rough cuts. So, you know, is it brighter than, than the final piece? Yeah, totally it is. It hasn't been graded. The, but the it was there was a series of decisions and in the end one of the things that happens when you do television is you're not involved in the whole process. In the end, the well, your, your movie that you're doing right now, you'll be in the. You'll I, be in the I hope so, unless they fire me. Yeah. <laughs> you'll be but, in, you'll but, be in the, the grade. grade. Yeah. But that, but you're not involved in the whole process, and eventually they get to a place where decisions are made, and what I see, what I saw, is like everybody who was making it thought about it a lot, but hook, line, line, line and sinker into the idea that it was about embracing the darkness, and made that decision. The, and as a friend of mine said, which I thought was pretty funny, he was like, it's the Night King, not the Afternoon King. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, it's like, it's true, it is. I mean, that's the, that's the, the, the very, at, the, at, at its bottom, the bottom line is, you couldn't, they couldn't have flashlights. It was, it was like, they ha it had to happen by night. Fire is something that they are fighting against that the whites they could use as a weapon and you had to restrain it for as long as possible so that you felt that there was no hope and out of it emerges this hope and this possibility. So we made a conscious decision to go down that road. I must say, you know, I've watched it on every format I have available to me to try and work out what's going on. I haven't had a problem with seeing what I needed to see to know what was going on. That said, I've also seen it a thousand times. so. Because mm. I made it, so I would not. I mean, and the, thing, the only thing that drove me nuts mm. about the conversation was the sense that the cinematography was problematic. Because to be honest with you, it's beautiful. It's fucking awesome. Is it, right, so I've got, I just, I can it, say it, oh, this one. You can totally put on the record. Fabian and Wagner did a fucking awesome job on that. On that, sh I, it's, it's, it would. I would challenge anyone to do what he did. Um, so I think that the key thing for me is like, I think the argument about the, the long night, I mean, it's called the fucking long night, sorry, but it is called the long night, it's, and, and long night, and all in the same thing, that I think that the thing is, with time, and with the opportunity to see it in a cinema, maybe, Mm. You see, this is, this is, this is, this is, there's two things here. Remove because the cinematography is good. There's two things. One is the grade is a choice. Yeah. And you, how far you go with that grade is tricky, and it's also a tricky issue in our modern day and mm. age where you and I are spoiled. We live in New York and LA. Yeah. We have good theaters. 
uh, we have good viewing things. And it's hard to, at what point do you take, you know, Bradford Young has to deal with this with everything he shoots. Yeah. Like, at what point do you take into account people are streaming this and they're having compressed files and how many people, and how many, and even in movies, like how many, like when your movie goes to theaters, when my father goes sees it in Connecticut in the movie chain, it's gonna look like shit. And when I go see it in oh, in New York, yeah. you know, no, I'm being serious. Yeah. I go home and I go to these chain theaters and there's there's no light, yeah. you know. And it's like, but there's how much do you grade for? You don't in proper. Sorry, you don't. I mean, yeah. the, the the truth is, you don't. What you do is you try and do the best job possible at the highest resolution you can, that feels like it's appropriate for the job. I can't control what people watch it on. I've never made anything to be seen on an iPhone. It's not intentional. When I started making things, there weren't any iPhones. There weren't screens that small. I always wanted a television watch from Japan. My dad never got me one. So I gave up with that idea. I've, everything I make, I've made to be as in the largest format possible to be experienced with people. And Long Night is made to be watched in a cinema with as many people as you can possibly stick in there. And I don't have a solution for the problem that yeah. arose out of it. Um, let's go into, we've got to finish this up <laughs> before we start your <laughs> vacation. Um, let's just talk about the the first, I, I don't know what it is, What's, before Danny, before the battle starts in eight, it starts in five, yeah. it's, it's about 25 minutes or so? Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the first 25 minutes of that yeah. because it's like, you're you're dealing with Danny here, and it is such a dynamic, dramatic twenty five minutes. Yeah. And obviously, it's picking up where four left off. Yes. And you might have had an easier time if you were yeah. if you were doing your handoff to yourself about there. But let's just talk about how you handled that first twenty five minutes, and which is like this setup of what she's about to do, because it's um, it's an incredibly gripping moment where mm. I think we can kind of you know the. We can kind of see where this is going, mm-hmm. and but you don't know you don't know how how it's you know how how bad it's going to how, how, how bad, down the rabbit hole it's going to you go know on. or what the trigger is going yeah. to be. Yeah, that that I mean, I I I I had in my mind how I was going to end four. Um. So, uh, and irrespective of what. David Nutter had shot in in my mind I knew that it was going to end I was going to and this is the only way I could get to five is like I had to know what had come, gone before I was trying to know what's happening before and after an episode I do so here I had imagined that we were pushing in on Cersei trying to make the decision about whether she was going to kill me Sunday or not we just all we did is that heat Robert De Niro push in shot where he's trying to decide whether to go back for that guy the, the, the serial killer that used to be part of his crew um and that's, push- a, that's a heat reference yeah, everybody. yeah. <laughs> and, and we're pushing on Cersei pushing on Cersei pushing on Cersei and then when we get to a nice big close up of Cersei who cannot help herself she gives the command and you never see Masande's head come off and you never see Danny walk away and you never see Grey Worm the episode ends there and my episode starts so in my mind De- uh, David Nutter hadn't shot his episode yet so I had decided that's what it was and so I was picking up from there so when you first see her uh, first see Danny in her chambers and Tyrion goes to see her we took off all her makeup and we basically said okay this is and we ruffled her hair and we said you've never been like this this is where you're going to start and it was this idea of trying her of us trying to piece her back together um, 
but something's broken. And so for me and Amelia, it was a really, you know, we went through that entire season and we have both me and Kit, me and Amelia and a bunch of the other actors. We've, over the years that I've worked on it, I just go through the whole season with them and we go through all of their character arcs, whether it's an episode of mine or not, to figure out what we should be playing in that particular point. And at that point, we had talked about it now for three years, where she was, the direction she was heading in. You guys all knew. No, we didn't. Um, uh, we, we, you, you, you know, because it's been going on for a number of years. I mean, the way she has treated humans and the conviction she has means that conviction is eventually going to fall afoul. Like, if you can't see that, then I don't know what's wrong with you. The but the but basically she we we had reached this point where we had read the scripts we knew what was going on we knew where we needed to get to and we knew that we had to be uh, careful and most careful that the scene in episode six even though it wasn't me directing it had to be the the conviction with which she did that scene needed to be the same conviction with which she explained things in episode in season two. And so to get there, she needs to have got past her own fears of whether she's right or wrong, and she needs to absolutely categorically believe it. It's not She's not questioning herself anymore, which is the difference between somebody uh, who I think who's kind of lost their mind is like that's part of what makes us human is we question whether we've made right decisions or not. Um, uh, so we knew where we needed to... And there's to... the juxtaposition with Tyrion and... and yes, very, yeah, yeah. Who's, and is, who, who's ev- questioning everything now. Like ev- and he's also, he's failed, and he's failing repeatedly and magnificently, and it's just getting worse and worse. The, the, so I feel like we, there's a lot of meat on the bone to pick off for the first 25 minutes of the, of the episode, but there was also the awareness of what we were walking into, which is the uh, destruction of King's Landing, which was a for me and has always been uh, an audience participation event, which is you've wanted this, you've wanted this, you've wanted this um, here. <laughs> is it really that, is that really what you wanted? Um, and so to get that, it was like about getting everything in, all the pieces in place so that then we could approach that battle in a certain way and feel like uh, uh, it did the thing that it needed to do, which I would say there's what I wanted it to do and what David and Dan wanted it to do may not have been the same. Uh, I think it was to a, on a certain level and there was another level maybe where I wanted to take it further than they did. Um, it felt to me like there was a little bit of a Hitchcockian thing here of like for you of like let's give you what you want and now yeah. and now have to pay for it a little bit to, yeah. to a certain degree. That's yeah. what I noticed in the direction. Yeah, I, I, I think that I am complicit and part of a society that uh, you know, embraces violence as entertainment and 
I, and it's messed up. And so, and I was trying to, you know, here I am doing the fifth, uh, fifth, I don't even know how many, but the, a lot of battles. And at some point you're like, why am I being participatory in this? Why am I creating this for people to see isn't there enough bloodshed and horrible stuff going on in the world? And so then you start to think about, well, okay, what is it that I am making and what part do I play in it? And how can I reflect upon that? And, you know, I would also say is like, if you spend 45 days uh, violently enacting, recreating murders of the most brutal kind, it does have an impact on you. It's not without impact. Uh, It's not real, absolutely but it does have an impact and eventually it does become quite shocking. You go home and like, you just sawn a woman's head off for four hours that day in the most gruesome detail and killed a whole bunch of children and a whole other bunch of things that ended up being cut out from the the, the, the show. And then you sit in your own home and you kind of like suddenly, it feels, it's really weird and it's really un, uncanny and it makes you suddenly just get a glimpse of an idea of that how destructive war is after the fact. Um, so, and if what you've done is, you know, what what we part have done is we've done, created war, we've tried to have a, put a point on it of like, you know, there is no, there's no winners in war, just survivors. There's, there, we've tried to kind of say something meaningful about war at the same time, we're still making entertainment, which is about war. Uh, so, I felt like there was this thing of this bloodthirstiness that exists in the Thrones fans for revenge, for this payback that is personified by Danny, and and I just wanted to get to the core of what that actually means, because even though they're characters that don't exist in the end, what you're 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 looking for as an audience member is death and destruction. So I want people to know how bad death and destruction can be in a safe the safe environment they're living in and then also this comes back to the point of view of your our point of view during this destruction she's off in the background the, the, the yeah she was a monster at that point you don't need to yeah. see her it was really important we decided specifically not to cut back to her once she makes that decision she and the dragon become one we uh, it was all about staying with the people on the ground I don't understand where what King's Landing is in terms of like where you're shooting or what you're doing, and I I know that place doesn't exist, yeah. <laughs> you know. But so, and I don't know how much of it is a set and how much of it is you know. I know obviously when we're looking down, it's got to be a model of some sort. Um, and then I started seeing online a couple things with like seeing what element was mm. green screen or something like that. Um, but I want to come back to where we started. Some of these compositions are just insane, and I think. Um, they're almost painterly, and they're also in 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 the detail. Hmm. And one of my colleagues actually, I don't know who it was, did this one with a little girl on the pillar, hmm. and we can see things, you know. And then I see something with a green screen where the two brothers are on the stairs, and I can see. Well, actually, you got the stairs, and hmm. then that whole other backdrop, yeah. which was gorgeous. From almost with this sequence in King's Landing. Is this the pinnacle of your ability to almost paint in these layers and control these compositions? It, to me, it felt like the pinnacle of what you were able to to do in that, in, in, in the well, control that you have and that ability to 
to have a say in those layers and what they look like? Well, two things. One is, uh, to, to pin, by pinnacle, what do you mean? As in, this is as far as you can go. Well, I meant the fact that you've now been working in this visual effects world yeah. and this layers, and you, the, we were talking about control and time. You are now working on this thing for a very long time. Yeah. And you have more time to plan on this. And, and, and one sees that in these layers, it's no longer simply about scope in, mm. in, in some of these, you know, it, it's about composition and it's yeah. about, and I, I, pinnacle might be the wrong oh. word, but I mean, it, it, from your standpoint in terms of your work on Game yeah. of Thrones, was, was this something where that control over composition, considering that a lot of it is, is, a, is a visual effects mm. layer that you were able to kind of... It was, it, well, I, I guess, and tell me if this is the, if I'm answering the question correctly, it's about whether I'm, the, I don't, I've tried really hard with every battle that I've done to find something in it that I can grasp onto as a filmmaker so that I feel like I've got a story to tell. And in this one, the, 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 the spine again, which is what have we become, was uh, big and small, right on top of each other, right? Gigantic scale, a disaster movie. I watched San Andreas. Like a shitload of, I like watched all the YouTube clips. I went, couldn't watch the whole film, but I was like, all the, everything that was just destruction. And I'd watch it and I'd look at it and I'd try and figure out where my eye was going. Like what's, what's pulling me in? What's making this feel real? Because it seemed really important when you're creating that kind of destruction to have a, like, doesn't just happen people don't film that like you say it doesn't exist so we have to make these conscious decisions to add all these things in and have all of these layers and you know what do we shoot what's real what's not and so i would i watch these disaster movies just trying to figure out like what makes disasters feel real one of the things i noticed especially in bomb explosions is the way, and this only more recently, is uh, you'll have CCTV camera footage. The explosion will happen, it takes a fraction of a second. The smoke starts to clear, and people start coming back in and getting out their phones. And it's the weirdest thing to see this behavior. And it's they're communicating with people or whatever, or they're filming, I don't know what they're doing, but it's this fact that they kind of like meander back into these scenes of apocalyptic nature, like attracted or drawn back in, like the car crash that everybody wants to see, what whether the person survived or died. There's something really specific about human nature there. And then I would see these, I looked at these photographs of uh, post-war, you know, scenes people going to work while there's a decapitated head on the street or something like the normalizing of these terrifying images of, of these things that we get used to and you and i can't even understand that because we've never been in that situation right and i try to find the story in that because destruction is not something that 
there is much of a story too is like something's there and then you blow it up or something's there and then it collapses and then it's all about gravity and mass moving and stuff like that it's more mathematics the human cost which is the people that die because of that thing happening is also impossible to measure because when we see, you know, we hear 3,000 people got killed in a flood in India, it's like, it's just, no, it's just, it's, it's India and 3,000 people, I don't think of it the same way. The way we used to click on three people who kept dead in terrorist attacked, now it has to be, you know, or shot in a, in a, uh, by, by a shooter. It's got to be 250 people for our click on it. That desensitizing that we have, what I was looking for in some way with that, and this will come back to your question is like, how can I resensitize both myself and the people that are watching this, this idea that every single person that dies in this story, every single person that is buried by rubble, every kid, that little girl, they're all people and they have mothers and fathers and lives like us and they had aspirations and dreams and it got cut short by this event. And that feels like what we were trying to do there and if one is to say, is that kind of the pinnacle of your work in Game of Thrones? It's To me, it's something that was a theme that I was asked to be involved in in Game of Thrones, which is these gigantic battle sequences where thousands, hundreds of thousands of people die. And you're meant to, and I'm meant to, direct you towards caring for a character you know well. And what I wanted to get to in King's Landing was the idea that every single fucking one of these characters matters. Not just the characters, but the extras and the people you don't know. And all the people you'll never see or never know about. They all matter. And that's maybe me, or maybe it's Dan and David, I don't know. But it was something that evolved out of the need or my desire to not just add to the equation of violence and television but rather to at least propose like think about it. <laughs> okay you've been extremely generous with your time i appreciate it i i just throw this out there we can cut this out is there anything you can tell us about your new movie i know you just finished you're pretty much finished shooting the so main just finished shooting it's about uh the last man on earth who Builds a robot to look after his dog after he realizes he's dying, and um, it's so far removed from Game of Thrones. Not even intentionally, but it is. It's still about dying, but it's about growing up and growing old. And it's been so nice to work with just one or two actors instead of twenty, uh, and at the same time. Uh, you know, it's every project seems to be just as hard as the next. <laughs> well, Miguel, thank you so much. Uh, this is wonderful, um, and uh, congratulations. You know, it's, it's first off, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we're thinking about like twenty twenty for this, something like this, because you got like a lot of motion. October twenty twenty, yeah. October twenty twenty. Yeah, so you, because you have a while, yeah. you need you need some time. On I, will, the... I will hopefully be done. I've had a rest on somewhere nice and start another movie by the time this comes out. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.